This message by Sam Shin, entitled "Relentless," was recorded at Wellspring Church on March twenty fourth, twenty nineteen. The text for this message is Nehemiah chapter six, verse one to chapter seven, verse seventy three. We'll be reading this morning from the book of Nehemiah. We'll be reading all of chapter six together. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, "Come and let us meet together at Hakafarim in the plain of Ono." But they intended to do me harm, and I sent messengers to them, saying, "I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down." Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, "It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king." And you have also set up prophets to proclaim, to to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, "No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind." For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O、oh、God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehabel, who was confined to his home, he said, "Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night." But I said, "Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in." And I understood and saw that God had not sent them, sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O、oh、my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. And so the wall was finished. On the twenty-fifth day of the month of Elul, in fifty-two days, and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah. And his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. So far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, it is good to be back and to be back at this place and to be able to speak to you.、Um, I told you when、uh, I first returned during the announcements that I would share throughout the messages a little bit of our trip, and today will definitely be one of those days. So, give you 
a little taste of some of the things that Dan, Thomas, and I were able to see. Many of you know that in Zimbabwe, we are planning on adopting a new community, and it's called Pamaisi. It's actually in partnership with the Kim, Sam, who's leading worship today. And the question is, why are we there? Why are we going there? And I cannot say this enough, but that without Hands at Work and the local church there, these children, almost in the different communities, 200 perhaps, give or take a few, within each of these communities would not be alive. And we heard that not just from the volunteers, but actually from the grandmothers who were caring for these children, that they were very clear in saying to us, it is solely because of the church international, such as us, the local church on the ground and hands at work, that you have these children who are running around in these communities. And so recognize that much is being done in these places. And though we're far away and far removed from there, the impact is tremendous. And when we make requests for teams or for resources, it might seem abstract, but you go there and you see the impact it's making, not just physically, but spiritually as well. There are people turning to Christ, even as they prepare for death. So it is very important to see that. But what's also important to see is that as much as the gospel is shared and declared and hands and feet are going to bring mercy, also there's opposition. And that's something we saw as well. You know, we had the opportunity over a Sunday to go to a church in the local community. And when I say church, it really is this, it's not a building per se. It's a small, well, it is a building. It's a small structure, uh, clay brick with just absolutely packed with children. And it's not big at all. And, uh, one of the volunteers who is, um, the regional service team leader, Levy, He's someone who we've been in partnership for a long time now. He actually preached the message, and interestingly enough, it was from the book of Nehemiah. And when he preached this message, his point was that the walls of Nehemiah, he had this responsibility to build up the Jerusalem's walls to protect that city, God's people. And in the same way, he was saying that the walls of this community is broken, and the church has this responsibility to build up this community and that we can't just simply let the widows and the, the orphans die or leave them to their own volition because without the support of the local church, they will not be able to survive. It was in every way a very powerful message and it was very convicting. So we sat there after many songs sung, prayers lifted, listening to the word. It seemed as though everything was done until... At the very end, this man stood up and he started pacing the aisle. Again, it's not a big place. He started pacing the aisle and he was speaking in Shona, which is the native tribal language. And most of us who do not speak Shona, we were just sort of sitting there thinking, well, I was thinking this must be another sermon on top of a sermon. Maybe that's their tradition. But uh, listening to George Sneeman, who is the president and founder of Hands at Work, and, and Levy, and they, they had said to us, and there was a group of us sitting there, they said, let's stand up and go. In the middle of this talk, so this guy in a very small, small room 
So all of us who really stick out in this place, we all stood up and we left. And as we left, we heard why we left. Basically, this man, he was drunk, but he happens to also be a church leader. And the reason he's a church leader is he he basically donates an extra $5 a month. And in a place like that, $5 a month is quite a large amount. In other words, he has political and financial capital to hold sway over the people. In fact, while we were there, a, a grandmother, when he had first st- stood up, a grandmother had said to him, hey, hey, you might want... And he just shushed her aside and continued on. And basically, his message was, actually, everything that guy said, Levy, is wrong. And instead of focusing on the outside, let's focus on what we have, which was not much. It was essentially the insular message of thinking, how do we just simply survive? I mean, that's really what it is like, not just in Zimbabwe, but all around the world, which is when the gospel is preached and proclaimed and people are motivated, there is also opposition. There's opposition to what God wants to do, especially when it comes to breaking into new grounds, enemy-held territory. And as long as there is a, a gospel in this world, there will also be those opposed to that gospel. Sadly, not one man who was in that congregation, stood up and said, you need to sit down. That just didn't happen. It really was a revelation of the leadership of the church or lack thereof. And so you had one woman who was willing to stand her ground, and yet even she was shushed down. This is not just what happens in, as I said, in Zimbabwe, but we see it happening in this very text in chapter 6. Of Nehemiah. It is ironic that as Levi spoke on Nehemiah, right in the midst of this was a Sanballat or a Tobiah or a Geshem. And so when we see the advancement of Christ, we will always see opposition, relentless opposition, a, a nonstop antagonism against the work of Christ. But what we also know is that as long as there is opposition, there's even a far greater relentlessness from God himself because nothing will stop the work of God. So, we begin with this story in looking first at both relentless opposition and then the God who is relentless for us, for his glory. And we see this first in verses 2 to 3. Nehemiah says, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hecaphirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm, and I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Those who wish to do harm will do anything they can to undermine and destroy God's work. Again, as long as there is God, there will be opposition, in this world at least. So who are these opponents? You have to really take a step back and examine why were they so opposed to Nehemiah? And as you can imagine, it's usually about self-interest. It always is. Sembalit was a Horonite, as the narrator tells us. And according to chapter 13, verse 28 of Nehemiah, he had an inside track to be on the leadership 
of the people of Israel. He was married to the high priest's daughter. And if you want influence and power in Jewish society, boy, that is a great place to start. And so, as we can see, perhaps, from the college admission scandal, having an inside track can be helpful. It also can be hurtful, right? But that's the way the world operates. Get to know somebody. Marry the right people. Be born in the right type of family. Marry to a certain type of wealth. And if you have that, you'll probably get places. Sort of how the world thinks. And sad to say, even we as Christians can think along those same patterns. And so this man who, through nepotism, and also through his influence, was able to eventually become probably what scholars think are, are, is, is the governor of Samaria, which is the northern part of the kingdom of Israel before it was split. He wasn't Jewish because he's from Beth Haran, but he definitely had his sights on the southern part of the land. So like most people, he had he was wealthy and he had power, but the thing about power is you're never satisfied with power. If you have money, you're never satisfied with what you have with money. You want more, and it's insatiable. Just like any drug, really. It never satisfies. You think it will. You think if I get just a million dollars, everything will be okay. But then, no, but tens of millions is more important. And then billion and billions. It never ends. Tobiah, the other opponent, was also married to a high-ranking official, an official's daughter in Jerusalem, which drew many of the nobles to Tobiah. We see that at the end of chapter 6, uh, verses 18 and on. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, to Tobiah, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son, Johananan, had taken the daughter of Meshalem, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence, reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. He was one of them. The nobles who were in power, and one thing about nobles or people who are wealthy and in societally uh, held positions of power and money, they don't want to lose it. And so when someone in their midst is threatened, they will do everything they can to close ranks and to protect that person, to make sure that, well, if he goes down, then I might go down. So I'm going to protect him because by protecting him, it'll protect me. Politics at its best or at its worst, whatever you want to look at it. You know, as long as we live in this world, that's how the world operates. Know the right people, protect them, regardless of what type of rules you break or whether you have integrity or not. Because if you're godless and you don't see God as Lord of all, then all that matters is how am I going to succeed? So the way they see Nehemiah is he's an outsider. He's trying to promote reform. And by promoting reform, the first thing he's going to do is see if there's corruption amongst the leadership. And he's first looking at Tobiah. So Tobiah represents them. Can you imagine the type of opposition Nehemiah faced? Any type of reformer, political, religious, societal, if they're trying to do it with integrity, it will be a very, very long slog. It will be difficult to do that because attacks will come. Geshem the Arab was the most powerful. He ruled over Edom and Moab. Those are historically the greatest enemies of Israel. They were lands east and south of Israel. And like the others, 
he too wanted the slice, his slice of the pie. He wanted to make sure that Nehemiah and the Jews never succeeded because by keeping them out, there's a power vacuum. Artaxerxes, who was in control over that whole land, might say, you know what, we'll give it to you three. And maybe when you three take control, we'll fi I'll finally be able to rule with some sort of prosperity and peace. They wanted to keep Israel destitute, and they saw Nehemiah as a threat to his desire, uh, their desire to actually take over this land. You know, in many ways, this is just the normal operating procedure of life. In all sorts of realms, I mean, you probably have seen this at work. How often is coalition building a part of success? You know, making sure that you cover yourself in emails because you want to succeed or that's how people think. And this is just a part of not just corporate life culture, but part of our society. We actually saw it when we purchased this building. You know, one of the things that happened, and I know many of you know this story, but some of you do not, perhaps, is that the HOA basically opposed us when the city and everything was going so swimmingly. But suddenly, the HOA, and on the HOA, there are three members. They each, these three members, guess where their businesses are located? Right around our building, one, two, and three. And they did everything they could to oppose us from actually purchasing this building. It wasn't easy. And I am not here saying, let's go and get vengeance on them. Now that we got it, we're going to dominate. Rather, my prayer is that we will be a blessing to them. That we will be able to love, even quote, our enemies. But we must not think of this process, and it is a long process. As Chad shared, it's been a year since we bought this building, and we're still working out all the, the different struggles of it. And there have been many hurdles along the way. It's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to think, why is this happening? Why can't it be so easy? Well, look at Nehemiah. It was not easy for him, nor for the people of Israel. How can we then say, wow, it should be easy for us? Actually, such times remind us that we need to trust in God in this process. From every aspect, from the city's perspective to the actual building to the financing of it all. And if we don't, and if we think, well, it should all fall lockstep perfectly in place so that everything happens. Well, if that were the case, we wouldn't trust in God. And we would be no different than the Israelites who eventually were destroyed and the Babylonians came in in 586 to just wipe out the temple, the very building that God had said, I delight in this building, not because of the building, but because of your heart for me. We are perhaps tempted to think in the very same ways that the Tobias and Sanballats and Geshems also think, which is try to do things politically financially, strategically, structurally, and if all of that works out well, then everything will be great. It's easy to go down that road. And it's very easy also to forget God, as we so often do. So what is it that these three men do to Nehemiah that really disturbs him or impedes his heart and attempts to thwart his progress? I see a few ways in which these three men actually relentlessly oppose 
Nehemiah. The first is through persistent pressure. Look at verses four to five. And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. Do you know that they sent five letters of the same thing telling Nehemiah, you need to stop. You need to give up. I mean, maybe once or twice might make sense, but five times the same message. And Nehemiah responds exactly the same way every time. They wouldn't stop. And they're not going to stop. Not even after the wall is built. Are they, they're going to continue on. So lest we think that, well, opposition, obstacles, hardship ends after a project is completed. That's not how it works in our world. It's not how it works for Nehemiah. Secondly is that they also present seeds of doubt. In verses 6 through 7. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. The greatest tool opposition has, especially... Um, the enemy's opposition against godly leadership is to create doubt. And it's to start with innuendo. This has begun very early on. This tactic actually is created by the, the greatest accuser and deceiver of all. And his name is Satan. And in the garden, Genesis 3, when Eve is there in that garden, Satan comes along and asks the question, did God really say? If you listen to that question, did God really say you shall not touch this tree? It's, it's a question of presenting not a straightforward accusation, but a seed of doubt that you don't, if he just went in and said, you know, God wants you to take from this tree and he wants you to eat it and you're going to die afterward. That's not how it worked. He's really good at creating the subtlety of doubt. And that is so often how opposition does occur. Because what, he's, what they're doing is they're creating the doubt amongst not only Artaxerxes, the major king over this land, the king of, of Persia, but as well, by doing that, it creates doubt amongst the people. And it doesn't take much. It takes one conversation. One person to get it, and suddenly that becomes gossip and rumor and it just starts flooding and it filters. And it's so easy to let that go throughout. Thirdly, there are seasons of weakness for those who are in leadership or in a place of position of influence. In verse nine, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from their work and it will not be done. But now, oh, God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah was a man of faith. He was a man of prayer. But do not think that these hints and doubts and accusations had no bearing on him. It was hard. It was difficult. It actually caused him to perhaps even wonder, can I do this? And so he had to go back to prayer and notice the prayer. It is, oh God, strengthen my hands. Because he actually needed strengthening. You wouldn't ask that prayer if you were always strong. 
Instead, I'm sure there are points where he's doubting at least himself. Can he do this? He's feeling tired and worn and weary. If it was sheer willpower or Nehemiah's brilliant strategy or superb leadership skills, he wouldn't have made it. It was this type of prayer because he recognized, and as we'll see later, that this is a spiritual war. Paul describes it this way. This is not a struggle against flesh and blood in Ephesians 6, but against principalities, powers, and rulers of this dark age. This is a spiritual war. And as well, frankly, even our own building time, our own building process, and much more than that, even the struggles of life. I mean, we've heard of many in this very room within the past few years of losing loved ones, illnesses. There's a lot that happens. The more we actually encroach in the territory of the enemy, the more we will experience all sorts of things. And this is why that prayer that Nehemiah asked should be and must be ours as well. Oh God, strengthen my hands. Strengthen our hands. We're growing tired. We're growing weary. That is not a bad prayer. Actually, we should be committed to even speaking of our weaknesses. I am so thankful that in public context, through testimonies, through prayers of confession, we hear of thoughts of people going through hard times of depression, of struggle. Together, we should be saying with one another, oh God, strengthen our hands. But you don't have to pray that prayer if you never confess or acknowledge weakness. But it is because we are weak that we need Christ who, is, who has made us strong in him. Nehemiah confesses that weakness. And when we face the Lord's opposition, uh, the Lord's work, you will face opposition. So get ready for attack. This is not surprising. It must not surprise us. Instead, it should drive us on our knees to him. And it should also call us to sometimes say, hey, can we pray together? I know that always seems a little odd to us who maybe finds it odd to say that, but it should not be. Should it be normative, actually, when Christians are talking and we're sharing burdens and suddenly someone says, let's pray together. Let's, let's stop and pray. I hope that's happening on an ongoing, regular basis with one another. And if your friendship and relationship as husband and wife, as, as son to parent, daughter to parent, parent to child, or friend to friend, if it is not, if you're not able to say, hey, can we pray together right now? Then you have to really wonder if your relationship is growing towards the love of Christ. Or is it just built on super, superficialities? If who Jesus is and what he has done is actually what we say, which is, he matters more to us than anyone, any person, any endeavor in this world, then it should not be an odd thing for me to actually need and call out to one another, I need your prayer. I need your encouragement. I need, let's read scripture together. That should not be odd. But it is odd when we don't have that desire ultimately. So I hope we are with Nehemiah joining together saying, Oh God, strengthen 
my hands. Strengthen our hands. Diabolical plotting is the last way in which this opposition occurs in verses 10 through 14. Shemaiah in verses 10 through 14 is not an outsider. Please note that. He is an insider. So at least with uh, Geshem, he's an Arab. He's outside the Jewish people. But Shemaiah, and you'll see this throughout this chapter, is that there are many different people who are opposing Nehemiah from within. And that, again, should not surprise us. He's actually one of the leaders that Nehemiah is depending on. That's why he's making this suggestion for Nehemiah's benefit. Absolutely not. But how does he make, how does he attempt to trap Nehemiah? What does he ask for? He asks Nehemiah and says, hey, your life is in danger. There are people out to kill you. So you know what you need to do? Let's go run to the temple inside and take refuge. And in that place, you'll be safe. And Nehemiah's response to you might seem a little strange. But if you understand what all of the laws are about in before God and regarding the temple and especially the most holy place, it was only the high priest goes into that place and only once a year. No one is to ever go in that place. And if you do, you shall surely die. If Nehemiah ran into that place to take refuge and to hide, he would have undermined everything he was doing. Basically, his whole life was, his whole mission was to say, I'm doing this unto the Lord. And if he ran into that place, it would actually be more about protecting himself. It would be doing exactly what Tobiah and Sembalat and Geshem were trying to get him to do, which is to protect himself. And that is deadly to the mission of God and to our own souls. Once we become self-protective and that is, is above everything, we can never see what God wants for our lives. We'll always be stuck. And it is no wonder that we become dry of heart and of spirit unto the Lord. The greatest dangers are always from within. It's from our own heart first, our sense of self-protection and self-righteousness that says, I am above everything, including God, others, no matter who it is. But then it's also from within my inner circles. Actually, that is also a dangerous place. I mean, think about Jesus. Where was he attacked the most? I mean, he was attacked by everybody, right? So talk about someone who faced opposition, who was trying to do kingdom work, Jesus himself, our Savior. But even within his own inner circle, within the 12, someone betrayed him. And then within the 12, someone denied him three times. And then within the 12, everyone abandoned him. How can we be surprised when Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, there are going to be wolves from within you who are going to do great damage to the church. Many of the letters of the New Testament, especially the Johannine letters, John's letters, were written because he was warning against dangers from within the church, leaders who were opposed to the gospel of Christ. And so Nehemiah was facing this as well. Another thought about this diabolical plotting and the, the counteraction of that is, is this phrase that I want to say something that, that George 
Sneeman kept on saying while we were there, and I told the guys I'm going to mention it here, is this phrase of brave, not safe. When we were in Africa, George kept on repeating this. And I think it's because I'm sure for him, as he comes to places like the West, Europe, America, and he sees the idols of our culture. And there are idols in the African culture, too. So it's not just in the developed world. But definitely, our idol is the concept of safety. It is what controls, it is the controlling factor of everything that we do. It's, I remember a day where, and I think those of us who are around my age, 50, you remember those days where there'll be no such thing as play dates. You just took your bicycle, you rode it around the neighborhood. Mom, I'm going out. I'll see you back at 7 p.m. I'm leaving at 9 a.m., whatever it might be. And you just ran. I rode my bike around town and didn't even think about, oh, I could be kidnapped. Um, some guy could come along with a car and just pull me in, trafficking. And we always ask the question for those of us who are around my age to say, is it that life is worse now, more dangerous, or is it that we just never knew because there was no news about anything? Who knows, ultimately? Maybe a combination of both. But I do think, though, that when we think about what is sort of the, the biggest or one of the biggest points of tension in our lives, it is this concept of safety, having a safety net, being able to retire with a safety net, having making sure that we have insurance for every single thing possible out there. Making sure that our kids are watched with perhaps even their GPS signals and all these things. And I'm not advocating a lack of awareness or vigilance. But I do think, though, that when we think about this whole process of life, it is, it is uh, at the forefront of our hearts and minds is to think, as long as I'm safe, everything will be okay. But... I don't know if that's how the gospel shows what is most important or should be most important in our lives. I was walking with uh, George and Levy. And we were having a conversation. It was down this road. And as we're walking this road, a drunk man, another drunk man, comes to us and he's holding a machete. He comes to all three of us and he's holding this machete and he's saying, hey, brothers, and he's sort of saying, hey, brothers, do you have something for me? You know, you don't really meet too many people with machetes in their hands here. I have to admit that I was a little nervous. I mean, he was drunk and he had a big, gigantic knife in his hand and he was asking for something. And the three of us had nothing to defend ourselves. But I look to George and Levy and they just have this firmness and they say, we have nothing, move away from us. And all they have to defend themselves against the machete is their words and their confidence. I, ha I don't have confidence nor words. <laughs> and the man, after talking to all of us, he left. But I just thought of that scenario and thought, this is their lives. They've placed themselves into a position where safety is not always going to be there. And it will take a sense of Bravery. Now, not stupidity, but bravery. The bravery that they have 
and that you see so much of the world that is following Christ, especially when there's vehement opposition against the gospel, is that there is this bravery that trusts that God is everything the Bible says he is. That's where the bravery comes from. Again, this is not foolishness. It's not, oh, you should just go drive around anywhere without even taking any precautions. Or let your kids out and do whatever they want any time of the day in any place without precautions. But it is to say that the guiding principle of my life is not going to be, am I safe? The guiding principle of my life is to say, God is Lord. He is powerful. He is just. And how often does the thinking that safety, my personal safety, is based on all the precautions I take in my life and making sure that I hedge all of myself and my family against the possibility of danger. And when that happens, I will feel okay with myself. If only we could agree with someone like Nehemiah in the midst of danger to say, Oh Lord, strengthen me. What helps us see, here's the thing about brave, not safe. And I'm going to add to George's little phrase, brave, not safe. But actually it's brave, not safe. But there is safety in the one who is ultimately brave. No, there is safety. The Bible is regularly calling out whom we worship, the God who is in control. I praise God that we believe in a sovereign king. And if you were to be able to buy a titanium bubble and live in that for the rest of your life, have a little control, remote control, to be able to roll around in this titanium bubble, bomb-proof, whatever it might be, you could not be safer in that than you are in God's hands. Theologian John Calvin, I love what he says in the Institutes. He describes it by saying that if you were to try to stay in your house and to think that your house, if you never walked outside, that's when you'll be safe, the roof can cave in and destroy you if God so sovereignly wills it. So you are not safe in your house and your children are not. You think to yourself, as long as I have enough money, maybe a, maybe just some food stored away in my emergency locker and maybe a couple of guns to protect myself and a, a first aid kit and my emergency kit is all ready to go. And as long as we don't do anything dangerous, my kids don't ever do anything dangerous, they will be safe. The roof could cave in. They all die. You all die. And you're not safe at all. The real question is, who do we believe protects us, guards us, keeps us, loves us? Is it me and my work or is it the God whom we know is the Lord of the universe? Isaiah 41.10 says this, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I know Jim and Sarah Choi are going to be leading a city impact um, later today. They go there. It's a ministry in San Francisco. They sort of do what hands does overseas there in San Francisco in the tenderloin. And how many of us 
you, go, you think about the tenderloin, you think feces on the street, needles on the street. And you go into the projects and you think, oh, I would never want to go there because that's not safe. There's a team going to Zimbabwe this summer. And, you know, this cyclone hit the week after we got back. And I thought about, I don't know if you guys thought about it, but I was thinking, what if we were there? (laughs) We might not not be here yet. Who knows? Maybe we would have felt so convicted to help out, whatever it might be. It's not safe or convenient to follow God. At least not in the world's perspective, but it is safe always. It's the safest place you can be in. Actually, it's far greater danger to do nothing and to prepare, build your hedges, never take a step of faith. I'm thankful for this team that's taking their vacation time, their their money, their resources, to say, and some families that go, and many of the families that have gone and said, you know what, my kids need to experience this. Unless you think that, oh, everything, if, if you're thinking, well, do I have the right vaccines? And, um, and again, I'm not asking for foolishness. We should take vaccines. We should do what we need to do. But do not try to factor out every single possible danger. You might be flying on a Boeing Max 8 jet. It could happen. Oh, I don't want to fly on that jet. That's dangerous. Ethiopian Airlines. You know, the first thing, as soon as that happened, I can't tell you, well, <laughs> I can't tell you how many people texted me saying, wait a second, Ethiopian Airlines, we're not flying in it, are we? That's dangerous. You know, that's, I, I won't say who emailed me, but it was a couple of pastors <laughs> on this. And I said, you know, Ethiopian Airlines has one of the safest airline records, even though it's not the nicest of airplanes. They've gotten a lot better, by the way. But why do we think like that? Because our first instinct is safety in the way that the world thinks of it. But I am so thankful that that's not how God operates. Imagine if God operated that way. This book would have never been written. This story is a story of God taking so many risks all the time. You know, he's relentless. As much as opposition is relentless, God is more relentless. He will not be opposed, not even by us and our sin, not even by our rejection of him, our constant failures, our constant forgetting of him, our constant turning away from him. God is relentless in his love. Jeremiah says, he says what God says, I have drawn you with loving kindness. I've not forgotten you. Read the prophets. They're all about saying, Israel, you're rejecting me, but I'm still following you. I'm still saving you. I'm still pursuing you. The first sin, Adam and Eve, they fail. And yet at that place, it only makes sense to me. If it was me, I would have said, forget humanity. I'm, I, I, <laughs> there's dogs that worship me. There's a, cattle that low for me there are you know giraffes that stick out their necks for me literally i mean i don't need people i have everything trees cry out rocks will cry out that's what i would have done i would have just said forget you all but our god is a god who is relentless he would not let satan take over instead he would take 
this failed couple's offspring to eventually undo the work that Satan had done. Nehemiah is one chapter of 66 chapters of one book. But this story of Nehemiah pursuing, persisting, being faithful in the midst of opposition, that's God's story. That's the story of the gospel. The story of the fact that God will not give up on his people, regardless of what they're like. And so we see so often how many times Jesus tells his disciples, do not be afraid. You know, in John chapter 13, Peter says, I will follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. I will lay down my life for you. You know what Peter, Jesus says? You know, Peter, uh, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter was probably shocked by that. He's thinking, what are you talking about? I just told you, I'm going to lay down my life for you. Chapter 14, verse 1, the very next verse of at the end of that chapter. So that's the last thing that Jesus said. Jesus says is, you're going to deny me three times. 14, verse 1 says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Wow. I just, I'm amazed by that. Because it is a reminder of what Jesus is like. Knowing that his most beloved disciple, whom he would use to build up the church, is going to fail him so miserably. And yet, he tells him, don't worry. It'll be okay. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And then the rest of the, at the end of the gospel of John, chapter 21, that story where Jesus confirms, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you really love me? Lord, you know I do. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you really love me? And Peter's sort of upset saying, come on, Lord, I, I said this to you again. I do love you. Feed my sheep. Three times. Peter should have got it, right? If it was me, I would have been like, wait, I denied Jesus three times. I... um." Yeah, it makes sense why he would ask me three times. But that moment where Peter had denied Jesus three times, you know what the result was? He, he left sobbing uncontrollably because he felt so miserable. He had forgotten the words. Jesus knew he was going to deny him, but he's in control. Let not your hearts be troubled. This is our Savior. We can trust him. We can believe that he has a plan. That safety is best with him, not with our own hands. Romans 8.28, it's this type of faith. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. This is a relentless faith in a relentless God. It's the, God, you're going to use all things, even denying Jesus three times. You're going to use that for Peter's good and your glory, so that people will turn to him. The rest of chapter 6 and 7 in Nehemiah, I know I'm not really covering that. And the reason why is that it's a, it's a story of 
hard work, sacrifice, and celebration, and a listing of all the names of all the different people and how they're going to be used to build up God's people. But it's always a result of the effect of the heart. Once they got what God was doing, once they understood it, that's when they started working and giving. Look at chapter 7, verses 66 to 73. After the list of all the roles of the people, then it describes, well, this is what happens when people understand. They start giving of themselves. They, verse 70, now some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and the list is endless. The giving is not a building drive. It's not a pledge drive. It's an outflow of one's heart. You know, the more you understand, it's not going to be my nest egg that protects me for the rest of my life or my investments or the, the, the real estate investments that I've made. You go down that road, you are, you're going down a very dangerous road. But instead, it's always, God, you have given me everything I have. And what I have, I present to you. Just like that boy with the loaves and the fishes. What little or great you have, you get it. That's why going to Africa when we go, and every time we go to a house, there's always, they give you whatever they have. You know, really, they give us their investments, their bank accounts. Every time we go, it's, it's really remarkable in that way. The poorest of the poor can be the most generous sometimes. Sometimes not. It's not always about poverty being generous. But it's the proportion of it that makes it so startling. Let me close with this. In verse six, uh, chapter, uh, chapter let me see, 6, verse 16, it says, And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. This is the story, Nehemiah's story. It was possible because of the help of our God. You know, we've been talking thus far about well, all the people did all the work. They, they were people who were working, laboring hard. But Nehemiah knows that this is an impossible work unless God actually did the work. Yes, we do the work, but God does the work. Yes, we are responsible, but God is sovereignly responsible. And knowing this, we know that God will not cease to sustain you, to hold you, to help you, to strengthen you. And you know this to be true because there is a marker for us to make sure we never forget the cross of Christ. The blood of God's own son, infinitely high price of God's son shed for you so that you will never forget that he is relentlessly pursuing you time and time again. That no matter how much you sin and turn away from him and forget him, you can still go back to him. And he's never going to say, I don't want to see you again. You're constantly messing up. You're always such a failure. You never do anything right. God is not like that. Never. Because of the price of his own son's blood. And so Paul describes this love this way. Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing, nothing, not even your own sins, not even when you've cursed him out, not even when you have done the most despicable things in your heart, not even that will separate you from the love of God because of Jesus. And this is why we give, we serve. We go to San Francisco and serve in City Impact. We think about Zimbabwe. We cross the street to our neighbor and share the good news about Jesus. When we're tired and worn, we don't feel like studying the Bible. We do it anyway. When we are thinking that, well, there's no value in sharing the gospel for the umpteenth time with my friend or my family member because it, quote, never works. We still do it anyway. We pray. We don't cease in praying. Not because we think we can somehow accomplish things solely by those methods, but because we've been saved. We know how much of a treasure it is to have that type of God pursuing us relentlessly, never giving up, never ceasing. And this is the Lord. He is so good. May you never forget that. Let's pray together. Father, what hope would we have if we depended on our willpower or on our merits, on our pleadings? If we thought that if we cried enough, pounded the the ground enough, that somehow that in and of itself makes us worthy to come into your presence. Oh, that never, that falls so far short. But we are here not because we look perfectly well-made together. It's not because we are conflict-free. You love us in our muck. Oh, Father, strengthen our, our hands. I pray that there would be a room full of people, a church full of people, who will confess sin to one another, who will confess brokenness to one another, who will take the bold step of being brave and not safe, entrusting ourselves to a relentless God who never gives up. We know this for sure because when we take and eat this bread and drink from this cup, we proclaim together the God who saves, that Jesus, you have done the work. So we praise you and just worship you together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.